0: M.S.W. Media. Hi, I'm Harry
1: Litman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Feds favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insiders view of what's going on in Washington and beyond. Plus, sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law a calling I am honored and eager to answer.
0: So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45.
1: And everybody, welcome to episode 18 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, May 19th, and I am Andrew Torres.
0: And I am Allison Gill. And uh, yes, A.G., but... I've been told I should start using my real name Ooh. Uh, by my handlers. So I am Allison Gill. Uh, we have a big show today. Am I,
1: am I a handler? No, oh, no. Anyway, I'm not. Anyway,
0: sorry, go ahead. No. Didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> here we are.
1: We're, we're eight seconds into the show, and I've screwed it up already. Please keep going. Oh, I'm leaving <clears> it
0: in. Uh, we have a big show today, including a breakdown of the plea agreement. <laughs> Um, the uh, magnanimous Joel Greenberg entered into today. Some information on multiple executive orders signed by the former guy and overturned by Biden this past week. We have the Supreme Court granting cert on a case that could jeopardize Roe v. Wade and the continued implosion of the (laughs) Republican Party. But first, we should thank our new patrons. If you love this show, consider heading over to patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod And pledge as little as a dollar an episode to get access to all sorts of goodies, including ad-free versions of this show, direct messages to both me and Andrew, patron hangouts. We're considering a karaoke get-together next. (laughs) Um, All sorts of great swag. Uh, We're only at about 1,140 patrons, so we'd love to see that hit 1,500 or 2,000. That would be a great goal. And we know you're listening, and we love you. Yep. So, this week, we have four new patrons.
1: uh, Ben Smith, thank you. Christina Hill, and two, (laughs) I love this one, long-time listener but finally finished my PhD and can finally contribute until the government wants their money back at least. (laughs) Uh, Maybe our longest name ever. Uh, And side note, yeah, look, if you're a student, if you're a single mom, single parent, whatever, if you're struggling, take care of you. Take care of yours first, right? We'll be Mm -hmm. here. But if you can... And you could probably throw us a buck. Go ahead, throw us a buck. But uh, thank you, long time listener. Yes, thank
0: you, and long name haver. And hey, it might just be worth the dollar to come up with a a fun name. I, honestly, I, yeah. I, that if, what good is your money if you can't spend it on fun stuff? Uh, and finally, <laughs> thanks to Happy Birthday, Nikki. So, oh, Happy Birthday, Nikki. Happy Birthday, Nikki. <laughs> and now onto our first segment today uh it, it was a very interesting day in federal court what, what happened andrew
1: yeah so today in federal court we did the, the notice of this started to leak over the weekend and uh you and i giddily texted each other knowing that we would be able to to record this monday night so today federal court former Seminole county tax collector and matt gates a- ally is that the word we're using now okay all right Matt Gates ally Joel Greenberg pled guilty to 6 Of 33 criminal charges in exchange for providing, quote, substantial assistance, end of quote, to federal prosecutors. And the opening line of the agreement should give you an idea of the scope of the crimes that Greenberg is charged with, quote, The defendant shall enter a plea of guilty to counts 1, 8, 9, 14, 24, and 26
0: of the third superseding indictment. (laughs) the third superseding indictment. Now, uh, count one is the child sex trafficking count. That's Uh, gross. Count eight is the production of fake IDs. Count nine is identity theft. Count 14 is wire fraud. Count 24 is stalking and count 26 is conspiracy to commit an offense against the United States. Now, two of these crimes, uh, uh, then they outline, right, the, the sentencing minimums and maximums. And two of these crimes, I noticed, have a mandatory minimum. The child sex trafficking a cr- crime has a, carries a 10-year Mando minimum, and identity theft has a mandatory minimum of two years. Now, I've seen, covering all these years of the Mueller investigation and other other, you know, crimes of the former administration, I've seen sentencing recommendations... Uh, that when a witness cooperates, the Department of Justice can recommend a downward departure from sentencing mm-hmm. guidelines. Can you is, is it possible to recommend a downward departure or a lower sentence on crimes that carry a mandatory minimum? Or is that it mandatory minimum?
1: No. Yeah. When it, So when it is statutory, though, let me answer the question first. If it is a statutory mandatory minimum, uh, then uh, no, you as a judge have no discretion uh, to depart below uh, that minimum. You must, if somebody pleads guilty to a child sex trafficking offense, uh, they have to get 10 years in prison. Okay, so that's what uh, Greenberg is going to get as a minimum. If everything stacks consecutively, the way in which the sentencing guidelines work is that, um, you know, we've talked about this before. We've talked about this on OA. It's a matrix, right? You look at your offense history, you look at the offense level, and that gives a very, very constrained number of months uh, that the judge, in which the judge can impose a sentence that is a guideline sentence, and then if the judge wants to depart from the guidelines, either up or down, uh, they have to write a long memo. Right, they have to explain why they are departing uh, from the guidelines, and they have the they have the right to do that. Uh, the Supreme Court has uh, has has uh, recently ruled that uh, the guidelines must be advisory, but when. A federal criminal offense is statutory and it says it carries with it a 10- year mandatory minimum uh, that's ten years means ten years
0: so so for example with the with the chauvin sentencing which we were discussing in a previous show, and we talked about the aggravating factors. That's an upward departure right. uh, from from the the minimum sentence sentencing requirements based on ha, you know whether or not he's ever committed a crime before. And the judge accepted four of those five recommended aggravating factors, uh, and he only didn't accept the last one because the last one actually caused the death. Yeah. Uh. So that's sort of the kind of thing uh, that can have an impact. On on sentencing. And so there could be aggravating factors here. There could be. uh, But there can be no downward departure. That's good to know.
1: Well, you, you could if. When you compute the final number, if the final number is let's say, you know, 23 years, right? You could still have a downward departure. You just can't depart down more than the statutory mandatory minimum.
0: Okay. So he's looking at 12 years, provided this whole thing doesn't, but 12 years minimum. 10,
1: because you could serve them concurrently.
0: Oh, right, right. You're right. So 10 minimum, uh, because they could, yeah, subsume that two-year identity theft into there. Right. And... That means that and because and, if he blows it up, it'll be way more than that. So it's it's baseline 10. <laughs> Absolutely. And look like <laughs> okay. it it means a lot
1: when you plead guilty out of the gate to, you know, at least 10 years in, uh, you know, federal prison. Right. So let's take a look at some of the criminal behavior here, starting with the child sex trafficking. The plea agreement specifies uh, that Greenberg used four separate accounts, in- including his Government credit card, because of course he did, to conduct more than 150 transactions totaling over $70,000 to pay women for commercial sex acts. It goes on to say that one of the persons that he paid to engage in commercial sex acts was a minor, quote, under the age of 18, when Greenberg paid her to engage in commercial sex acts with him and others, end of quote.
0: Hmm. Yep. And others is very interesting. And uh, we'll talk about that in a minute because I thought it was interesting that nobody else is really named in this. We don't see individual <laughs> one. We don't see Matt Gates. We don't see congressman one. We don't see anything like that. Uh, the, now this document says Greenberg's payments involved facilities of interstate commerce, including a cell phone, which was used for text messages. And then they listed a whole array of dates that they texted back and forth. Uh, he texted back and forth with the minor, and Venmo payments to this minor, seven of them. Now, is is using a cell phone, just using a cell phone to communicate, is that what bumps it into the trafficking yep. arena? Yep,
1: that is exactly right. So so remember that your federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction, right? Um, Your baseline crimes, right? Murder, statutory rape, sex trafficking, those sorts of, right, are state crimes and jurisdiction rests with the state court in which the offense was committed, unless there's some reason to believe that the crime occurred uh, or involved elements that, that occurred across state lines. And um, and so here, the way in which you get this into federal court is because uh, the payments were uh, Venmo payments uh, and uh, were a- agreed here to be, uh, you know, facilitated via interstate commerce uh, using uh, using a cell phone. it, it If you want to argue that um, a reckoning is coming with respect to uh, long arm jurisdiction and, you know, whether something counts as being in federal court because you've used the Internet. Right. Like I I think that day is coming. Um, I don't know that Greenberg's case is the one you want to bring, uh, you know, to sort of challenge that. But uh, but yes, that's that. That is what gets us into federal court.
0: Ah, I gotcha. So uh, what, what was some of the other crimes? That he, oh. These are just he, the ones he committed guilty to. I know there was something where there was a, like a David system, a driver's license thing that he yeah. was not using properly.
1: <laughs> so uh, other stuff to which he pled guilty. He used the federal driver's license database to research his sexual partners. Uh, that's gross. Uh, that violates the Federal Drivers Privacy Protection Act. Uh, He used that database to look up the age of the minor involved because he suspected that she was underage, um, which led to count nine. We talked about this in a previous episode, the identity theft. Right. So the minor wasn't the only person uh, that he used the driver's license database to look up. He, He used it hundreds of times. Um, to do research that had nothing to do with any legitimate activities of the tax collector's office. Yeah.
0: Mm, yeah. That's One gross. of those times, yeah, w- <laughs> and f- apparently he took somebody, R.Z., who's just named R.Z., uh, and took all of, of that person's data to make himself a fake driver license with his photo and the other person's information. And apparently, he made several fake IDs that way. Yeah. Now they—they they don't say what he used. I, I combed it. I couldn't find out what he used the fake ID for, for himself. I, I'm again maybe checking in hotels or something. Uh. But he also he told he told prosecutors <laughs> he was making fake IDs for for women that were not yet 21. So that they could get into clubs and bars. So he was basically trading sex for fake IDs for young women that he recruited through his sugar daddy website.
1: I think I'll just let that stand out there and speak for itself. Another crime he's pled guilty to is emptying a government bank account to invest in Bitcoin, then returning the original investment and keeping the profits. He did that with over three hundred thousand dollars. Um Count twenty-four for stalking is the teacher he was running against. We talk about this on the show, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, he used the mail and computers to generate false accusations of pedophilia in an extreme example of projection. Um, you know, hacked into the the the, uh, the school's accounts to try and uh, discredit the, the the teacher. And finally, count twenty-six is the conspiracy charge, which was when he. And again, I I need to I need to emphasize this after he'd already been indicted, (laughs) decided to defraud the Small Business Association by taking a covid relief
0: loan for which he was not qualified. Okay. (laughs) good. Yeah. And he had recruited a few people in the SBA, the co-conspirators that he he worked with. And here's a small detail uh, from. From the plea agreement, Greenberg told an associate inside the SBA he had no intention of using the funds for any type of legitimate business expenses because he had none, and then asked his co-conspirator, how quickly can I blow it all on pussy? <laughs> that is in quotes in this court document. And I I have to say, I the, the court documents I've read over the past four years, Andrew— very wildly uh but uh so where i would maybe four years ago be surprised to see something like this i am totally not
1: i i have only been practicing law for 25 years as of today and uh that how quickly can i blow it all on pussy is the first i did that's that's there's there's a
0: first time for everyone. Yeah, how quickly can I steal this taxpayer money intended for <laughs> COVID relief for small businesses suffering and blow it all in pussy? Now, uh, this okay. makes him these details, these public details, make him a mm, less than desirable witness for the prosecution. <laughs> so why cut a deal? So look.
1: Whenever you are a prosecutor and you are thinking about the kinds of cases that you bring, like we've talked about this before, right? Like it, it at, at one end are the really, really easy choices to make, which is somebody low in the chain uh, who was just following orders against whom a case would be difficult to make. Uh, and you get them to plea to a lesser offense in order to go, you know, to, to, uh, implicate somebody further up the chain. Um, this is kind of the opposite of that right this is somebody who has pled guilty to very serious offenses who is looking at very serious time um the the standard plea agreement as you quoted at the beginning um re- requires substantial assistance and cooperation um so uh, so there are two ways to read that right like the first is um to say uh that this is, a deal that a prosecutor has reached with a defendant who um, is is pleading guilty in the range to which you think you could reasonably convict them at trial right the second thing is if you think this person is is useful in going up the chain to our buddy matt gates um is it is this person going to be a good witness it depends on how you use him, right? Like a good prosecutor will front all of these things, right? Will will say, So it's true you did X, right? It's true you did Y. It's true you did Z. How, Mr. Greenberg, can we believe anything that you are saying to us here today? Right? And he will say, Well, um, I I this is my level of genuine contrition. Uh, I am serving, you know, eleven years in a federal penitentiary. Um, I did not get, you know, uh, I, it. I was not allowed to skate, to walk, uh, and you know, I've, I've, uh, I've learned my lesson. Um, and a jury is going to have to, to balance all that out. But, but you know, the fact that he's not getting a super sweetheart deal will help. You know, in some ways make him somewhat more credible uh when when he testifies against Matt Gates, which is the reason to 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 continue to seek his cooperation.
0: yeah, I'd be interested to see what the math is on on yeah. how many years he shaved off his sentence because twenty six charges, but a lot- i mean a lot of them are parts of other charges yeah uh, so but so i you know it's hard for me to determine as a non-lawyer, if this is a sweetheart deal, but it feels like it. But um, two questions. When you're, when you roll on a bigger fish, what makes a bigger fish? (laughs) Bigger crimes or a bigger name? Because I mean, I, maybe Matt Gates did all these crimes and more, uh, but could it just be because he's a congressman? I mean, what would be the impetus for that? So that's a
1: great question. And again, I'm a civil lawyer, not a prosecutor. And uh, so let me tell you my experience from talking to prosecutors, talking to judges, talking to um, uh, people who have worked primarily as defense counsel, right, who've been my law partners over the years, Um, you know, people who've worked uh, in the public defender's office. I think if you thought... Let me answer the question directly. I think the answer is both components, right? Like if you thought that Joel Greenberg was the mastermind and he had strung along Matt Gates, right, even though Matt Gates is a higher profile get for your prosecutor, I think most prosecutors would sort of look at the situation and say, yeah, I, I, I it is it's better from a justice perspective to bring in the person who masterminded this offense, even if that means giving the sweetheart deal to the congressman where that might look like political favoritism. There is, right, lots of people who are prosecutors run for public office. Uh, that's That's been true since the founding of the republic, right? So they are cognizant of what kind of a public reputation am I building for myself? Uh, but but I I I cannot think. If you thought that Matt Gates was sort of strung along here, no, I don't think no. you'd make this deal. Yeah.
0: No, I think what I'm getting at is they aren't just going after Matt. But yes, I mean that's a really important point. But I don't think they're just trying to get Matt Gates on fake IDs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what it, what it seems like the only viable. Reason to 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 forgive twenty six federal crimes is that they've got Matt Gates on child sex trafficking. Yeah. All right.
1: Yeah. I, I I I think that inference is the right one to draw.
0: Unless there's some other person we've never heard of that is you know <laughs> that will that they drop a bombshell. But I, but I
1: guess what I want to say is that like even a Democratic prosecutor would not cut a deal with the mastermind to roll on a higher profile defendant if you if you didn't think that the higher profile defendant was also more morally and legally culpable
0: yeah and and i agree with that i don't think anybody especially a democratic prosecutor wouldn't do that but um a republican might anyway um (laughs) i'm just kidding sort of uh now my final question before we go to break here Does a cooperating witness have to testify. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they have to
1: testify if the government asks you to testify.
0: I mean, have you ever have you ever heard of them saying, you know, hey, we want you to cooperate, but we don't want you to testify. Yes.
1: Yes. That happens all the time. Right. Uh, You can provide information, but the government could say, you know what? We're going to decline to call you to the state. You have to be ready to come forward if you want. But uh, we're not sure you're going to help us as a uh, as a testifying witness. So, uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, interesting. We will see what happens. Uh, and I have a feeling that and. I'm sure that you know this, and I've talked to several other prosecutors. They've already got most of the corroborating evidence that they need. They wouldn't have struck a deal uh, if they didn't have that. So I don't think we're too far off from finding out whether charges will be brought or not against the people we think they may or may not be brought against. um, Months on the outside, I think. But I think we'll know soon. I think that's right. All right, cool. Everybody, we'll be right back. Stay with us. Hey everybody, it's AG and today's episode of The Pod is brought to you by Magic Spoon. It is the best thing ever. It is super delicious cereal, but it's healthy for you and it brings joy to your mornings or afternoons or dinner. Sometimes I have cereal for dinner, so just sue me. Uh, my favorite food growing up was always cereal. I would sit down in front of Saturday morning cartoons and pour a big bowl and I would drink the milk after, but I had to give it up as, a, as an adult because of all the sugar and carbs and stuff, but Magic Spoon to the rescue. It tastes exactly like regular cereal from your childhood, but it's super nutritious. It magically has zero grams of sugar. Sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, 4 net grams of carbs, and only 140 calories per serving. It's keto friendly and gluten free, green free, soy free, low carb, and GMO free. And exciting news Magic Spoon has released a super delicious new flavor, birthday cake. Birthday cake Magic Spoon will be available in a special five pack for a limited time only, so get it while you can. Or you can build your own box. Available flavors to build your very own custom bundle are cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, and cinnamon. I love the great new flavors. Combining them is amazing too. So I put cocoa with peanut butter. Cinnamon is delicious. They're all so good. Uh, And right now, if you go to magicspoon.com slash cleanup, you can grab the new limited edition birthday cake or a custom bundle of cereal to try today. And if you use our code CLEANUP, all one word, at checkout, you can save $5 off your order. The offer is now good anywhere in the U.S. and Canada. Hoo-hoo, Canada. But only when you use our code at checkout. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it has a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, you get all your money back, no questions asked. Uh, But you will love it. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash cleanup. And use the code cleanup to save five dollars off. Everybody, welcome back. Uh, as we know, part of the cleaning up on aisle Forty Five process <laughs> is reversing all of the absolutely ridiculous, illegal, hilarious, uh, disgusting executive orders signed by the former guy. And Biden started that on day one in, right? Like yep. he got he started like just reversing executive orders. Uh, Right off the bat. But this week, Biden undid a bevy of the especially idiotic executive orders, including three that were signed in the waning days of Trump's term.
1: Yeah. On October 4th, 2019, Trump issued a proclamation that said beginning November 3rd, right within within 30 days. Uh, that would restrict immigration into the United States by people who are uninsured and cannot pay the costs of their health care. That order was separate from the public charge rule, which allowed the government to reject legal immigration based on whether or not the person would pose a financial burden on the government, right? So that's always ah, been a part of the law.
0: Yeah, exactly. So that was like yeah, but I I remember when uh Cuccinelli yep. came out and said the Statue of Liberty, uh, bring us your poor, you're tired, but not too poor. <laughs> and then they they made it very vague so they could basically just turn everybody away that they didn't like. And, uh, you know, if you if you might need Section 8 or you might need SNAP or food stamps, nope, public charge, or burden on the on the Amer- on America. Nope. And they would turn you away. I remember. Yeah. That. But that's different from this proclamation. This was specifically right. about health care. Right? That gave
1: discretion This proclamation would deny entry into the United States to people seeking family based immigrant visas and some others if they're unable to show. Right. They bear the burden of proof that they will be covered by certain insurance products within 30 days after entering the country or that they have the financial resources to pay out of pocket for reasonably foreseeable medical expenses.
0: Yeah. Okay. So basically whoever we feel like turning away yep. um okay uh cool then then this is my favorite i should have saved this to last but i i i'm gonna do it now the proposed sculpture garden <laughs> to honor the great figures of america's history not american history america's history which was first proposed at his mount rushmore rally remember when he wanted to get on mount rushmore that's one of Thing. No, but this is you know he wants to do this garden of statues uh-huh. <laughs> and it's <laughs> and it's um some of the statues we you know he's like oh you you know George Floyd protesters are trying to erase history by tearing down confederate monuments uh but some of the statues that were supposed to be in this garden are uh John Adams, Ansel Adams and Samuel Adams of course mm-hmm. fair uh, Neil Armstrong and Louis Armstrong. The also,
1: also good, right? <laughs> uh,
0: Humphrey Bogart and Daniel Boone. I don't know if they'd be next to each other. I,
1: I, I have a Daniel Boone story that I will tell during our next live hangout.
0: <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, we've got George Washington Carver and Johnny Cash. Sure. Uh, I wonder if it's Johnny Cash with the double-barrel middle fingers. That one is my favorite. <laughs> Uh, The great American, Christopher Columbus, of uh, course. American,
1: to to the core.
0: (laughs) Uh, Both Benjamin and Aretha Franklin, those two Franklins. (laughs) Uh, Andrew Jackson and Whitney Houston, of course. And somehow he wanted to put Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison in the same garden. And that's just that.
1: Are they in boxing
0: poses like
1: opposite one (laughs) another? Yeah.
0: Well, there's boxers in here, too, including Muhammad Ali. We've got George Washington and then, of course, Elvis. There are literally hundreds of statues that were proposed for this. It was never funded, however. And thankfully, as of this Friday, it never will be.
1: Yeah. Bye bye. Uh, then, then there was the executive order that the other guy wrote, protecting Confederate monuments, because we're the only country that has people involved who want to venerate crim- war criminals. Who fought for the other side and lost,
0: right? Like they, they're they're losers. Uh, uh, anyway, sorry. So a friend of mine was like, uh, "Dude, I don't keep a poster board of all my losing lottery tickets in my uh, room. What are you doing?"
1: And and if you bought each lottery ticket, going, "Boy, if I hit the jackpot here, I'm gonna spend it on slavery," right? Like it's it's not that they're not just losers, right? right? They're, they're losers for a bad cause. Anyway, so order <laughs> protecting Confederate monuments, which read. And I'm not going to try and do a Trump voice for this, but you can probably almost hear it in your head. Um, I've I've actually gotten most of this out. Right. Like uh, hearing a real president for the last four months has just been so nice. Anyway, uh, the other guy's order read. Many of the rioters, arsonists and left wing extremists who have carried out and supported these acts have explicitly identified themselves with ideologies such as Marxism that call for the destruction of the United States system of government. Sidebar. That was, by the way, Jesse Helms's argument against uh, making Martin Luther King Day a national federal holiday. Right. Like this is this is the right wing's smear on Activism, right? Oh, you're a Marxist. Anyway, um, the call for the destruction of the United States system of government anarchists and left wing extremists have sought to advance a fringe ideology that paints the United States of America as fundamentally unjust and have sought to impose that ideology on Americans through violence and mob intimidation. Right. Because, you know, we're the ones who stormed the Capitol.
0: (laughs) All right. Interesting that that, he said all that before uh, he incited Mm. an insurrection. Uh, Finally, there was the order directing federal agencies to brand U.S. foreign assistance with a common logo of the president's choosing that would probably have his name on it (laughs) so that those who receive it know it was paid for. By U.S. taxpayers. Under the order, the Secretary of State and Administrator for the U.S. Agency for International Development will be responsible for implementing the new policy within 120 days. Uh, more than 20 federal agencies are responsible for distributing foreign aid overseas. So he wanted a. You remember how he wanted to put his name, which he did? On our uh, COVID relief checks, you know, yep. money brought to you by Donald John Trump. Uh, he he wanted some sort of a, a consistent logo that, you know, when we drop food aid into war-torn countries, it says, you know, courtesy of the United States of America and probably Trump's face on it with a thing, <laughs> you know. Thank
1: thank God, you know, that that, that those folks have enough problems right now. They do not need to try and, you know, digest a Trump branded meal ready to eat bar or what have you. So anyway, that one was likely in response to China stepping into the role of the global defender of multilateralism in the face of Trump's America first policy. You know, that's a role we could have had. But, you know, whatever, Uh, like any of his orders this one was ignored because the rule would have had to have been implemented by the Biden administration and uh, thankfully we have a same president who decided to nix that idea
0: mm. And I know I said finally, but I have I have another one. Oh, uh, double finally. Yeah. This is the that was the penultimate. This is the ultimate. Actually the statues <laughs> are the ultimate. But this is this is the closer here. Biden killed Trump's executive order from last May, right around the time Twitter started labeling his tweets as misleading. Uh he so he signed this executive order that would have changed the legal protections for social media sites, which would be in conflict with a statute. Uh, this <laughs> order was called Preventing Online Censorship, and it was centered around section two thirty. Of the Communications Decency Act, what is Section two hundred and thirty? I think everybody might have an idea, but uh, let us know anyway. What is Section two hundred and thirty? And can how can you sign an executive <laughs> order at just taking? Yeah, the... you you you
1: can't. Mm. This was this was this was truly stupid. Just performative. So, uh, yeah, it it so. Nineteen ninety six, Bill Clinton signed the Telecommunications Decency Act of nineteen ninety six, and judging by the name, it did the thing that you would expect that it would do right which was to try and make it easier in some ways to go after child pornography on the internet that was the bugaboo back then in 96 that's what the law was meant to do um it also is um and and again like you could have a sensible debate over Section 230. By the way, codified today, 47 U.S.C. 230. You can look it up. Um, it, it, you could have a sensible debate over this. Uh, but but basically it's about how you allocate liability for defamation and other speech related civil wrongs on the internet and and essentially like the way to think about it is like the newspaper versus the bookstore version right so if if the new york times if i say right something horribly defamatory about you right i say uh ag is a secret trump supporter uh and she funnels you know millions of dollars to donald trump at mar-a-lago if I say this on our show, right, um, you could sue, clean up on aisle 45, aisle 45 Productions, LLC, a barrel limited liability corporation. If. If I publish that in The New York Times, right, you could sue The New York Times for having published my statement, right, because The New York Times exercises editorial control over the people who get to publish stuff and like right like, like not just everybody gets to put stuff in the new york times and so you can hold the new york times responsible for my statement once they re- repeat it but now suppose i put it in a book right and the book is called the secret truth about ag that they don't want you to know right <laughs> and now that's sold in you know, your finer bookstores worldwide. Not that there are too many bookstores anymore, but you know, it's, it's sold in Walden books and, you know, Barnes and Noble and whatever. Um, You can't sue the bookstore because you pulled it off the shelf, right? The idea is they're too far downstream. They are not really the publisher of my defamatory statement. They just, Let you buy books there, right? They're they're too far removed,
0: right? And so, yeah, that happened. You know, when uh, Nunez tried to sue Devin Nunez's cow and Twitter, uh, and and the first thing that was dropped was the Twitter part. You can't sue Twitter for what Devin Nunez's cow posts on Twitter. Now he also turned out not to be able to sue the fake online cow, but uh, (laughs) but that's exactly that's one of the examples. Oh, and did you see today, Andrew? that uh it, it was just unsealed that that Bill Barrs Department of Justice impaneled a secret grand jury to help unmask the identity of Devin Nunez's mom on Twitter did you have the alt
1: yeah oh yeah uh, I alt I Nunes. did see that yeah. alt Nunez right uh it, it unbelievably corrupt but yes so all of this comes that you you are exactly right to pinpoint the Devin Nunez's cow <laughs> right uh because the reason that Twitter was able to get out on a motion to dismiss comes from 47 USC 230 subsection C1. And it is literally one sentence long. Here's the sentence No provider or user of an interactive computer service, put a pen in that, shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Okay. So now you might be thinking, Interactive computer service seems like a weird thing, right? Like I know what an ISP is, right? That's who allows me onto the internet. What the hell is an interactive computer service? Well, again, you have to remember this was written in 1996. This was written in the era of AOL online CDs being mailed throughout the country and, oh, get your 30 free hours by signing up and the little, you know, screechy modem dial-up noise, right? Like, so an interactive computer service is an ISP, but it also includes large online providers of content like facebook and twitter and the case law is a hundred percent clear right that those social media sites count as interactive computer services for the purposes of section 230 and what section 230 immunity does to them is it says yeah so um if uh we fail adequately to police whether there is defamation on twitter which by the way there is uh you can't we're not the ones who published it we're not responsible we're not the new york times we're the bookstore yeah right yeah and that's the way the law is now and by the way like again you have problems with facebook and twitter so do i Uh, i think i come down on the side of section 230
0: yeah yeah you can you know you're the you're the twitter not the tweet uh right. and so <laughs> That's,
1: i love that i put that on a bumper
0: sticker <laughs> <laughs> a very weird legal bumper sticker that six people would understand uh. but i love it uh all right well great thanks for going over that so these have all been unfucked all of these executive orders and um there i'm sure there will be more and uh, more interesting things going on in this administration uh we're going to find out uh the you know pretty soon what Merrick Garland's decision is on the Bill Barr OLC memo that is supposed to be released to crew. Uh, That was, we were going to go over that today. However, that was given a continuance until May 24th. Don't freak out. Uh, I talked to Joyce Vance, Andrew, who said, you know what, there's probably maybe some debate going on in the Department of Justice. Merrick Garland wants to make sure everybody is heard before he renders a decision because that's due diligence. Mm. And uh, that's her best guess. Uh, We don't know what's going on behind the scenes, so I wouldn't make any assumptions about whether or not he has an appetite to move forward with accountability until maybe we see how he responds, which will be May 24th. If he needed more time, he would have asked for more time, so I don't think we'll see another extension. But that's what's going on with that. And then we've got a lot more to talk about, including uh, this uh, cert granted. Mm Mm-hmm. In the Dobbs v. Jackson case, which I'm I'm freaked out about, maybe you can walk me off the ledge or continue to push me closer to it. We'll figure that out after the break. Hey, everybody, it's AG for Clean Up on I 45. If you're like most people, you almost never go to the doctor, me included. Maybe when you're sick or hurt, but that's it. Well, there's a practical and affordable way now that you can take control of your health long-term and get that preventive care you need personalized from the comfort of your own home. It's called SteadyMD, and it's your personal doctor online. SteadyMD is telehealth done right. You start by taking a quiz to get matched with a licensed primary care physician who understands your lifestyle and health needs. Then you have a one-hour intake appointment to start your relationship. And then after that, your doctor is available to you anytime by text, phone, or video chat. And unlike other services, this isn't a random doctor on call. Each SteadyMD provider has a limited number of patients on their page panel so they have time to listen and give you personal attention uh, i found the quiz to be fun super informative very easy uh, and i love my match catered just to me i felt immediately comfortable and confident in my primary care physician SteadyMD can help you get and stay healthy manage chronic conditions and also you know concerns reduce stress lose weight sleep better feel better boost your immunity anything you're looking for so skip the waiting room and the germs prescriptions are sent directly to your home or your local pharmacy, and all your medical records are in one place. And best of all, you get unlimited access to your doctor for just $99 a month. No additional visit fees or co-pays. SteadyMD will even help you understand and get the most of your health insurance, but insurance is not required. SteadyMD is now accepting members of all ages in all 50 states. So go to SteadyMD.com slash cleanup to take the free quiz and see which provider is the perfect fit for you. Steady, S-T-E-A-D-Y, M-D.com slash cleanup. There's no risk, no long-term commitments are required. That's SteadyMD.com slash cleanup, and we thank them for sponsoring the Show
1: And welcome back, everybody. And as A.G. teased, uh, we are going to discuss the viability of Roe v. Wade under the Roberts court.
0: That's right. On Monday, Supreme Court granted certiorari in a case called Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which news organizations are reporting as the case that could overturn Roe v. Wade. And I want to ask... You a question, Andrew? Because Ooh. I've we I've been saying over and over again as as these abortion laws come out, these ridiculous ones, like you know, you it's you can't be heartbeat has to be heard, electrical pulses, like just the dumbest ones uh, that are easily overturned. And I was like, now they're waiting for the right one. They're waiting for the right one. And a lot of people feel like this is the the right one. So how hyperbolic is it to say it, they could overturn at least in part Roe v. Wade?
1: Yeah. Uh, Not at all. Um, And 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 I think the first thing that I should really make clear is that the Supreme Court itself has already backtracked on the very plain language of Roe v. Wade almost 30 years ago in a well-known case. You know, this right. Planned Parenthood uh, versus Casey 505 U.S. 833 from 1992. So here's what I mean. Okay, I am. One of a very, very limited number of jurisprudential theorists uh, who will actively defend Roe as a really, really good decision, right? Like it, it, it has its critics both left and right, right? So in Roe, the Supreme Court, and this was a seven-two decision, by the way, like not a controversial, not a close, not a five-four, not a you know it could have gone blah 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 seven-two decision, ruled that there were two important interests at stake right that's what makes hard cases in the constitution and those two interests were the state's interest in protecting future life right and the woman's interest and i i should bracket this right we're talking about cases from 50 years ago um the the 1973 case did not have gender inclusive language i'm going to try and do that here we're going to try and do that but but i so you know today i would say uh, pregnant person i please beg your indulgence, um, that, that, that in quoting from the language, it's it's not gender inclusive, right? So anyway, that person's interest in bodily autonomy, um, which the court called privacy. So you had those two interests in
0: conflict. Mm. Okay, well, and so what the court did in Roe was come up with a trimester system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and That's where that came from. In the first trimester, the woman's autonomy interest was paramount. So state laws could not constitutionally restrict abortion at all. In the first trimester. That's the first 12 weeks. And by contrast, in the third trimester, the state's interest was paramount. So the state could ban outright abortions in the third trimester, but they didn't have to. That's week 28. And in the middle, the second trimester, weeks 13 to 27, the state could restrict but not ban abortions, right? That is exactly right. And look... As I said before, a lot of people, both left and right, have sort of
1: criticized that decision. But I think that makes way more sense than any of the abortion decisions uh, that have followed. Right. Like who they sort of tried to track, as we're going to talk about in this case, viability. But but no, like the court just said, there are two important constitutional interests and we've got to make a choice. And here's how we're saying first trimester woman's interest is paramount. Second trimester, it's in equipoise, so you can restrict uh, but not ban. Third trimester, state's interest is paramount, so you can ban.
0: So my understanding then is that, you know, in the late 80s or so, uh, conservative activists began thinking that with eight years of Ronald Reagan followed by the (laughs) election of George Bush, the Supreme Court had gotten a lot more conservative, so it was time to see if they'd overturn, challenge Roe v. Wade. And uh, the case they picked was the one you alluded to, the Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that was a Pennsylvania law that required a woman under the age of 18 to have the consent of her parents before getting an abortion.
1: Right. And and there was some other stuff in the law. It's not important here. But note the evil genius of the activism here. Right. Pennsylvania's restriction said if you're under the age of 18, you have to get the consent of at least one of your parents At any stage of the abortion. Right. So regardless of the trimester. Right. So they mounted a two pronged attack. And you saw this in the cert petition. Right. The first was uh, a direct appeal to the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade and say that there is no liberty interest. There is no privacy interest of a pregnant person to not have to carry a pregnancy to term. Right. And that states can just ban abortion outright from day one. Period. Right. That lost. Thankfully, we're going to talk about that. But the second prong was to overturn the trimester system and say that states can restrict abortion even from day one through things like parental consent laws.
0: Yeah. And that that carried the day. Um, The the majority opinion was crafted by two moderate Republicans, Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy. Mm. And they <laughs> reaffirmed that Roe was good law under a principle called stare decisis. And you're going to hear that word a lot over the next few months. Yes, you are. <laughs> that Roe had been in effect for 20 years and deserved respect as precedent, even though O'Connor and Kennedy said they would have voted differently if they'd been in the court back in 1973. So even though these two conservative more conservative moderate conservative justices were like i would i wouldn't have voted for this in 1973 but it's been here for 20 years stare decisis which in latin means you know it's that's the legal precedent it's let the decision stand yeah that's exactly let the decision stand uh and that's hugely important especially considering and we'll talk about some of the <laughs> we'll talk about some of the Justice Thomas musings that nobody fucking asked for, <laughs> about and how they and kind of relate to that that doctrine. Yep,
1: yep. And and we will put a pin in that. So look, you described that exactly correctly. So, but but on the specific test, right? That they, the Supreme Court actually upheld the, the Pennsylvania restrictions on parental notification and they got rid of the trimester system and they replaced it with a thing. And I, and I cannot emphasize this strongly enough that Anthony Kennedy and Sandra Day O'Connor just made up. Right. So when you're talking to Uncle Frank and he's talking about, like, you know, courts just make the laws and blah, blah, like they just made up this idea of a, quote, undue burden test. And the idea was because we have these two principles in conflict. Right. We've talked about that, that the state's interest versus the, the pregnant person's interest, a state after the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision may not place a, quote, undue burden on a woman's right to an abortion. And so for the nearly three decades since the Casey decision, pro-life activists have been pushing the boundaries as to what constitutes an undue burden, right? Because no, no, doesn't look like some burdens are cool, right? Like the Supreme Court was, yeah, you can burden, you just can't, that burden can't be undue. Right. And what does that yeah. mean? That's up to Anthony Kennedy.
0: Right. <laughs> uh, you know, like the, you have to wait 24 hours or you must have a... Uh, an actual uh, probing ultrasound Ultrasound. or you have to have a funeral for your fetus or you have to undo burdens, right? right? So enter the state of fucking Mississippi. Uh, I... I love you, Blue Mississippi. In March 2018, (laughs) Mississippi enacted HB 1510, which bans abortions after 15 weeks. 15 weeks. The act subjects abortion providers to severe penalties, including license suspension or revocation, and permits the attorney general to enforce its provisions through actions on behalf of the State Department of Health or the State Board of Medical Licensure. And that's unconstitutional as hell. So Jackson Women's Health Organization immediately went to the courts to get an injunction preventing the law from going into effect, like you do, and they won at district court, uh, and then Mississippi appealed, and then they won again in the Fifth Circuit, super super liberal circuit court, <laughs> right? Fifth Circuit. Uh, but yeah, no, Fifth Circuit is probably the most conservative circuit court in the country. They won there too. They upheld that der- that decision by the lower court. These are Mis- these are Mississippi courts, yeah. y'all. Yeah.
1: Uh, So then in July of 2020 mississippi petition for a writ of certiorari because history repeats itself and the supreme court maybe they weren't activist enough in 1992 uh but since then we've added a whole bunch of right-wing activist howler monkeys and so now they're rolling the dice to see if
0: they are today and look even though uh, no republican uh, president has won the popular vote Uh, uh
1: i believe george w bush did in 2004 very narrowly right but, yeah. But yeah, okay, right, yeah. Right. But anyway. Right. Your point stands. Right. Um, look, this is going to be really, 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 really bad. Right. The best case scenario from this case is that the Supreme Court rules that the plaintiffs lack standing. Um, and 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 here's what that means. Right. To have standing means to have that that you have an interest in the outcome of the litigation because courts don't render advisory opinions. Right. So. Uh, Think about this historically in Roe, right? Uh, Jane Roe, what we now know was uh, 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 Norma McCorvey, right? Uh, She was a pregnant woman. Right. So it's very, very obvious what her interest was in that case as to whether right she was going to be criminally prosecuted for having an abortion. And the fact that that happened prior to the case coming up before the Supreme Court. Right. Again, there's a doctrine that handles that. It's called capable of repetition yet evading review. But but in any event, you get an actual pregnant woman.
0: Right. So for like example, when Texas and 17 others attorneys general wanted to sue to overturn the election results in four northern states, <laughs> Midwestern states, it was found that they didn't it, have standing exactly to do right. so. Exactly right. Uh, seems here they got standing. Yeah. And, and look,
1: it has been clear for 50 years that an abortion provider like Planned Parenthood, right here it's jackson's women's health organization but but we know who's in the crosshairs right Uh, that they also have standing to sue Um, and that's been again reaffirmed very recently uh in the uh the june medical services decision in whole women's health versus Hellerstat, like the law is super clear that as an abortion provider you have standing as well because you're providing those services to women and and you are potentially liable uh you are also uh engaged in activism for women's health right um This Supreme Court could uh, look at that doctrine and throw out the entire case and say, oh, this was only brought by a women's health organization and not by a woman who is herself pregnant. And so, therefore, you lack standing.
0: Yeah, but that. hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a very unlikely best case scenario but that's the best case scenario. Yeah,
1: that's the best case scenario because that would confine the holding of this case to only a procedural review, right? It would it would make it harder to bring challenges to abortion laws. That would be really bad, but at least it would leave some vestiges of of Roe and and Casey intact, right? So, uh the intermediate bad result. So the next worst bad result would be that the Supreme Court reaffirms that there is some uh, interest, some liberty or privacy interest uh, of a pregnant person um, in not carrying a a fetus to term um, that would reaffirm the Planned Parenthood versus Casey undue burden test. But it would hold as a factual matter that states banning abortions at 15 weeks does not constitute an undue burden as a matter of law. Now that would be terrible, right? But keep in mind that in the queue behind us are states with bans as early as 6 weeks, right? And 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 this hypothetical ruling would pave the way for okay, well 15 is good, how about 6, right? Um th- this this is the question that's briefed, right? Remember I told you to put a pin in the trimester viability uh setup, right? Like in 1973, the idea of viability, right, that that a fetus could uh, be extracted from a woman's womb and then uh, survive with massive medical intervention on its own coincided roughly with the third trimester. Um, sh- Not shockingly in the 50 years since then, like we've had a couple of weeks worth of medical advancement. Right. So viability is like. 24 weeks now like super late second trimester right but but before the third right um and and it, what is briefed is uh is the fact that this ban is a pre-viability ban at 15 weeks does that make it violate uh the constitutional rights as as set forth in Casey uh because it restricts uh a, a pregnant individual's rights, pre-viability
0: but um well i mean they could they could decide that you know they could uphold the undue burden and state that, and say that the state doesn't have the right yeah that they could but that's not gonna happen <laughs> yeah i know uh all right so well the six week stuff i mean six weeks is stupid you don't even know if you're pregnant yeah. <laughs> six <laughs> weeks uh, and that's not the worst case no nope. um i mean let me let me guess here worst case is that the Supreme Court revisits the central proposition in Roe and says that there's no fundamental liberty interest, no right to privacy, right, as the court put it, for a pregnant person to make basic decisions about her body, including whether to have an abortion re- regardless of the date. So a state is free then, at that point, to ban abortion entirely. And and, and could they do that? Yep. Just on this 15-week thing? It, it so...
1: It- The precise holding of this case would not necessarily apply uh, to any law other than the Mississippi law, right? Or something substantively identical, right? Which kicks in at 15 weeks. So you would still be able to challenge the Arkansas ban at six weeks and some of those others. But That's the narrow holding. If the reasoning that the court uses to reach that holding is we decide as a Supreme Court that our articulation of a right to privacy inherent in the penumbra of the first, fourth, fifth, and 14th amendments with respect to fundamental bodily autonomy was incorrect, then... The holding doesn't specifically validate abortions from day one, uh, but but it eliminates any justification for challenging those. Right. And and that will be on the way. Um, and and I might even mention I, I don't think this is likely to happen like that's the worst case scenario. There's a super worst case scenario. Right. Um, the super worst case is which the Supreme Court holds that a fetus Right, and maybe a one-day-old blastocyst, right, is a person under the Fourteenth Amendment, right? Um, I do not have the time on the show to explain that. That is a completely insane belief to hold. That no responsible legal theorist holds that position. But I can tell you, it has the votes of Alito, Thomas, and Amy Coney Barrett now. So you know, if you're a fan of Season Five of The Handmaid's Tale, there, there you go.
0: Season four was bad enough. Yeah, uh, I'm. I mean, it was good.
1: Yeah, but, it did, but uh, terrifying. Yeah,
0: <laughs> absolutely. Well, my beans are on the intermediately bad outcome. Uh, honestly, where I think that they'll, and that's why I think they picked this case, so they could partly uphold Roe and then also destroy it at the same time. Do <laughs> you know what I, I mean?
1: I thought that until Barrett joined the court, right? Like ah. to me, that that seems like a Roberts. Approach, But uh, now, I mean, you have six justices on the Supreme Court that have written about abortion in terms that are uh, uh, not, you know, in, in terms that are like, you know, as as a moral evil.
0: Right. And we've had Justice Thomas over the last however long. Writing just opinions for no reason. Yep. Uh, dissents, uh, for example, and trying to uh, do it. And I noticed the kinds of cases he chooses are, are, are ways that liberals would, would agree. Um, in Not necessarily all the time, but, you know, sort of these magnanimous hero-like cases. We talked about this recently. He, there was a case where a woman tried to sue the military for her sexual assault. And there's an old fucking precedent no you can't sue the military and uh it got swatted down uh but but here comes thomas oh yeah well i think she should be able to sue the military and uh duh, 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 you know basically going against this uh, Starry decisis doctrine yeah. he's done it over and over again and it appears to me to be prep prepping the landing strip for for coming down on on overturning settled law and yep. and and that's kind of the way that I saw it because you know I'm military sexual assault survivor I think the Supreme Court made the right decision when they said you cannot sue the military because there are other remedies uh, and, and so, but here you know, here he comes like, I come to save the day. I am not by any means a sexual harasser or a gross fucking asshole. Uh, I say she should have been able to sue the military, which he totally probably doesn't believe he, you know, he's just, uh, you know, he doesn't give a shit about the rights of, of survivors of sexual violence, obviously. Uh, but you know, here, here he is trying to sort of pave the way- land, the plane as the wisp of a man, Rod Rosenstein would say. Yeah.
1: Um, I think you are dead on with respect to that. And so the the opinions that Thomas has written, and again, these are solo dissents, right, over and over again, um, it, it is, is Thomas's argument that Starry decisis does not apply when the reasoning for that opinion was, quote, obviously incorrect. Okay. Now, Think about it, right? I hear you snorting and it's a good it's a good snort. It's a welcome snort. You should be laughing derisively at that because story decisions can only apply when you think <laughs> the reasoning for the prior case was obviously incorrect, right? Like that was the whole point of going through the Anthony Kennedy, Sandra Day O'Connor. If you think the prior decision was right, you don't have to say, well, we'll respect this because it's a longstanding decision. No, you say it was right, right? The only time it matters... Is when you say, well, you know what? This was a close call, and I probably would have gone the other way. Uh, but it's been the law for 50 years, um, and and the tests that are laid down in Casey, by the way, are the proper tests for stare decisis, right? It is um, has has the previous law proven unworkable? Has have the conditions so changed as to rob the prior law of its meaning? those kinds of things, right? Yeah, no, we're
0: not even close.
1: And the thing you should be thinking about in the back of your head is, right, sometimes we have to get rid of Supreme Court decisions, right? Brown versus Board of Education looked at Plessy v. Ferguson and said, you know what? When we said separate but equal is fine, that was really stupid or bad. uh, We're going to say, no, separate is inherently unequal. But you tackle it straight on and you say, this reasoning has proven to be Uh, rejected by the weight of history and the idea that people have a fundamental right to control their bodily autonomy to make decisions about parenting about future autonomy about whether to have a child right like that that has not proven unworkable like we don't want to go back to a pre-griswold versus connecticut where states can ban the sale of contraceptives um because
0: we believe that, like, this is a free country. It's and, not you, even you, close you to meeting any yeah. of those burdens.
1: Uh, no, it isn't. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'll stop.
0: No, that's okay. Uh, I just wanted to get to our comings and goings block. Oh, we're running out of time here. <laughs> and uh, it is it is the new favorite block. And so we're going to do that. Okay. Uh, but right right after this quick break, if that's all right. All right.
1: I'm Greg Oliar. Four years ago, I stopped writing novels to report on the crimes of Donald Trump and his associates. In 2018, I wrote a best selling book about it, Dirty Rubles. In 2019, I launched Prevail, a bi weekly column about Trump and Putin. President Putin was extremely strong and powerful. Spies. Active measures. Actively in the language of the KGB. Mobsters. And uh, Donald Trump obviously does a lot of construction. And so many traitors. Over the last two years that I've been here, I've been accused of all different types of things and uh, all of those things that have turned out to be false.
2: Alternative facts. I drank beer with my friends.
1: Almost everyone did. Sometimes I had too many beers. Sometimes others did. I liked beer. Trump may be gone, but the damage he wrought will take years to fully understand. The best
0: is yet to come.
1: Join me and a revolving crew of contributors and guests as we try to make sense of it all. This is Prevail. And finally, as, as you hinted in our uh, last segment, we, we don't have a full comings and goings. We do have the makings of maybe a new segment. It's, it's kind of, you know, a, adjacent. Welcome to the Republican Civil War.
0: Oh, I love this. You all know the story. (laughs) The old chestnut. The House Republicans, who are, and I say this in my professional capacity, complete idiots, uh, decided to remove Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney as the chairwoman of the Republican House Conference. That's the number three position in the House for Republicans. And they replaced her with 36-year-old New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. And yes, the conventional wisdom you've heard is correct. According to 538.com, Stefanik voted with Trump 65% of the time from 2018 to 2020. Cheney voted with Trump 93% of the time. Uh, <laughs> Stefanik is basically a quote unquote liberal with a twist of insurrection.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I like that, right? It's a cocktail where you just squeeze it over the rim. But look, the key votes here are not in 2018 to 2020, but are in 2021, in which Cheney voted A. To impeach Trump and B against objecting to the slates of electors from Pennsylvania and Arizona because she knows a criminal when she sees one and she's not a fucking lunatic.
0: (laughs) Well, she's not my favorite person. I want everyone to know before everyone (laughs) before I get all the emails about, you know, don't she's not a hero. I know she's a terrible, terrible person and watching terrible people fight with each other is one of my favorite things. So (laughs) this move to remove Cheney. And again, we're talking about Liz Cheney from Wyoming daughter of Dick Cheney, I'll shoot you in the face, Dick Cheney, <laughs> uh, who is basically Palpatine, Emperor Palpatine, yeah. <laughs> was a uh, was a question about fealty to Trump. Yep. And Stefanik has it. She kissed the ring. Uh, Cheney wouldn't. Yep. Uh, Trump doesn't actually care about the results. After all, Stefanik herself voted against objecting to Arizona's electors on January 6th, although she did vote to object to Pennsylvania's electors. On January 7th, you know, after the armed insurrection. So she's a garbage human.
1: <sighs> yeah. Yeah. So, look, we have no idea how this is going to play out right now. Right. It, it, it's, it's early. Is it possible that the Republican Party, a party that literally had no presidential platform in 2020 for the first time in its history, which includes the Civil War, right, their their platform was just we like Trump, right, remains in control of Trump and the Trump. That, that's possible. Right. But look. It is also possible that career politicians, people like Liz Cheney, people who have been a Republican for two, three, four decades and didn't expect that a criminally insane game show host would come in and upset the balance of power, right? Like it's possible that those people expected to ascend the ladder in a sensible way and they're going to. Get together and collectively kind of vent their frustration and and bring the Republican Party to a point of reckoning. I mean, we, we just don't know. That
0: could be. Yeah. Good. I mean, we got a letter signed by 100 top Republicans who want to start their own party to go against Trump. Cheney made the rounds on the Sunday talk shows this weekend, appearing yep. on uh, This Week with Stephanopoulos. She said the decision to replace her in leadership with Stefanik was, quote, dangerous. And she added, I think that we have to recognize how quickly things can unravel. We have to recognize what it means for the nation to have a former president who has not conceded and who continues to suggest that our electoral system can't function, it cannot do the will of the people.
1: Yeah, and, and and look, it is painful to both of us to be here to be complimenting a member of Dick Cheney's immediate family, okay? I'm not complimenting. Yeah.
0: Her. <laughs> but seriously, I'm just reporting on just reporting on on the implosion I, of Republican Party.
1: But seriously, Republicans, <laughs> listen to Liz Cheney, quote, I mean, you know, we've now seen the consequences. We've we've seen how far the president President Trump was willing to go. We've seen not only his provocation of the attack, but his refusal to send help when it was needed, his refusal to immediately say stop. And that in and of itself, in my view, was a very clear violation of his oath and of his duty.
0: Yeah. And I will say, while I do not praise her and she is not a hero and I would not put her on a pedestal to stand alone where everybody hates you, your party and the people, uh, uh, you know, on the other the other party, they all hate you, and you're just sort of just extricated yourself from from the entire your whole <laughs> life as a politician. You know, I have personally been in situations where I've stood up for what was right, and I've got shit from all sides, uh, or you know, I tried to report something and uh, was, you know, just got shit from all sides. Right, that's a hard thing to do. It's, it's hard for like when she was given that speech on the floor and, the, and everybody was filing out except for Ken Buck, who stayed. Um, Ken Buck, interestingly, is the one who asked Mueller if he could if he could charge the president after he left office. <laughs> Got a very surprising answer. But, you know, that is hard to do. Uh, I you know, but again, I, I don't hold her up on any on any pedestal. But it's not just Cheney. In Arizona, where the Republican legislature seriously engaged the cyber ninjas To recount the ballots, sharing the parking lot with probably uh, a a better organization, the Crazy Times Carnival, Um, they're going to recount their ballots one at a time. Uh, We finally heard from a grown up, Maricopa County recorder Stephen Richer, who on Saturday called the Trump statement accusing the county of deleting the entire election voter database unhinged and called on other Republicans to stop. The absolutely unfounded accusations. So we can't indulge these insane lies any longer as a party, as a state, as a country, he tweeted. And he gave a pretty powerful speech about it, too.
1: Yeah. And, and look, Richter was elected in 2021, right? He defeated the Democratic incumbent. Um, he came in as the Arizona Senate, took possession of 2.1 million ballots from the 2020 election uh, and the Dominion voting machines, right?
0: Dun, dun, dun. Yeah,
1: for what was supposed to be a three-week-hand recount of the presidential race, which was won by Joe Biden by a not particularly close margin. Anyway, uh, the Ninjas uh, had to be shut down on Thursday. They've they've managed to get through about 500,000 ballots so far. Um, they plan to resume counting in about a week because they... <laughs> They had rented out the Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Phoenix to do their recount, and it was previously rented out to various high schools in the Phoenix area to do their graduation ceremonies.
0: Yeah, and and they're already finding counting discrepancies. Uh, The Arizona State's, the Arizona Secretary of State Hobbs is already like, you're already fucking lying. So, and Trump's statement here said in part that the entire database of Maricopa County in Arizona has been deleted. was like Strong Bad (sighs) in Homestar Runner. And he said, this is illegal. And the Arizona State Senate, who is leading the forensic audit, is up in arms. Now, Richer and the board say that the statement is just plain wrong. And in recent days, both he and the Republican who questioned Trump's loss, uh, Richer said, enough with the defamation, enough with the unfounded allegations. I came to this office competently, fairly, and lawfully. Uh, to administer the duties of the office not to be accused by my own party of shredding ballots and deleting files for an election i didn't run enough uh,
1: yeah so uh, so we're continuing to watch the republican civil war <laughs>
0: Yeah, I should just call it the implosion. (laughs) Let's hope. Yeah. All right. Well, that is our show. Thank you so much. Thanks to our four new patrons. If you want to become a patron, you know how to do it. Patreon.com slash aisle45pod. And thanks. Check out MSW Media. We are, this show is is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, which is a collection of creator-owned podcasts that focus on news justice and politics and i'm super excited that we're launching this month and and i hope you check it out at mswmedia.com anything else you want to say before we get out of here andrew no
1: other than i love doing this show with you every week and uh i I hope we can continue to do so for the foreseeable future
0: making the heart shape with my hands thank you i love i can see that
1: you actually did that (laughs)
0: That's right. We're on Zoom. I forgot. Uh, All right. Well, thank you very much, everybody. We will see you next week for episode 19 of Clean Up on L45. And we will have the information on the Bar Office of Legal Counsel memo and maybe something on the McGann testimony. Who knows? Stay tuned. So
1: much good stuff. See you then.
0: Cleanup Up on Ile 45 is written and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres and is engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mizell and Starburns Audio. Fact-checking and research by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with quality assurance and media by Muller She Wrote, LLC. Branding, design, and logo by Starburns Audio and Joel Reader with Moxie Design Studios. And our copy is written by Jesse Egan. Our music is written and recorded by Adam Orr and Christopher Hoffey and our opening sequence is designed by Allison Gill and mixed by Mackenzie Mizell and Starburns Audio. Follow us on Twitter at Aisle45Pod and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And And this this is is how we win. win.